series of cards on the table, and um, as always, they're not just to decorate your mantelpiece, because you're already here. Uh, Think of someone to give them to, and bring them along with you next Sunday morning. For those of you who are new to us, um, you'll notice on the inside of the white bulletin that there is an outline. Not a very detailed outline, because I want you to focus on the Bible text. Make sure, please, you have that open in front of you. And the yellow sheet um, contains the questions that we use in our midweek home group Bible study on Wednesday and on Saturday for the students. And uh, so do please join us for that if you're not part of the group already. Good, well, let's, um, let's bow and let's ask for God's help on this passage. Gracious and Heavenly Father, you have promised to be with your church, watching over us, protecting us, providing everything we need for life and godliness. We thank you that you know our past and understand it completely, that you know our needs and are able to meet them adequately, that you know our destiny and are able to prepare us for it perfectly. Lord, come now and speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word, that each of us might be conscious that we're listening to the voice of the Lord Jesus, calling us now to follow him into the future, and we ask it in his precious name. Amen. Well, Tom, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, is the former uh, Bishop of Durham, and he's a famous Christian writer. And uh, there's a place where he tells of a time when he was walking into the cathedral as part of a a great procession for a special service. And next to him in the procession was a senior and highly respected clergyman. And uh, looking at the order of service, this man turned to Tom Wright and he said, I see that we have Revelation chapter 4 as our Bible reading this morning. It's one of the two most wonderful chapters in the whole Bible. And uh, knowing that he was setting himself up, uh, Tom Wright asked the obvious question, what is the other other one then? And the man smiled triumphantly, well, Revelation chapter 5, of course. Now if that is right, if Revelation 4 and 5 are two of the most wonderful chapters in all of Holy Scripture. Well then our studies this week and next must be of the greatest importance for every Christian. So for the benefit of those of you who weren't with us last year, let me say two things about the book of Revelation before we begin. First, don't be frightened by the mysterious language. Uh, This is the last book of the Bible, and it contains New Testament truth in Old Testament language. Therefore, some knowledge of the Old Testament is a help. I'll try and point out some of the connections as we go along. However, I also need to say right at the beginning that we are bound to run into some things that nobody understands. We can guess at their meaning, 
But in those cases, uh, my guess will be as good as anybody else's. And again, I'll try and flag these up as we meet them. But can I say that shouldn't put us off? Somebody has said, what worries me about the Bible are not the things I don't understand, but the things that I do. And I hope by the end of our series that you'll be able to say that as well. The bits that we don't understand in Revelation won't actually worry us very much. But the things that we do understand are so plain and so powerful that we're going to have more than enough to think about. So don't be frightened by the mysterious language. Second, don't be frightened by its misuse, the misuse of the book. Uh, Over the years, the book of Revelation has been a happy hunting ground for all kinds of cranks and nutcases with an agenda of their own imagination. Uh, Perhaps the most notorious of these was a man called David Koresh, and his misuse of Revelation attracted a massive following into his cult in Waco, Texas in the 1990s. But uh, eventually his message and his activities brought him into conflict with the United States government, and in the events that followed, most of his followers perished. That, I think, is a reminder that false teaching is no small matter. Now, just because a part of the Bible has been misused, we can't avoid it. God has given us a Bible with 66 books in it, not 65. And there are important things here that God wants you and I to know, and we would be very unwise to ignore them. So I'm going to do my best not to misuse the text, and you can tell me at the end of the series whether you think I have or not. Let's begin by reminding ourselves where we are in the book. Last year we covered the first three chapters, and uh, many people never seem to get beyond the first three chapters, I think perhaps because they're the easiest to understand. And in those chapters, you'll remember, we have seven letters to seven real churches in which the risen Christ explains what is wrong. The commentators are pretty much all agreed that although these seven churches were real historical churches in the first century, they are also a picture of the worldwide church throughout the ages. And if we look carefully at those seven churches, we will often find ourselves in them. And the things that were going wrong in those churches then are still going wrong in the churches of Jesus Christ today. That is the context in which we are to understand chapter 4. John has been given God's perspective on these seven churches in Asia Minor. And there's an awful lot that is wrong. And I think John must have been wondering to himself, well, why is that? Why is the church of Jesus Christ not as impressive as it ought to be? Has God lost control? Is God unable to govern his church and do with it as he pleases? 
That, I think, is the unspoken question at the end of chapter 3. So, at the beginning of chapter 4, we leave earth and we're shown what is going on in heaven. We leave the churches of chapters 2 and 3 and through the eyes of the Apostle John, we get a glimpse of what is going on in heaven. He says, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Now, everybody can understand the significance of an open door. Uh, Suppose you arrive here on Sunday morning for the first time, and somebody's told you that we serve breakfast, so quite naturally you arrive feeling hungry and thirsty. But uh, as you look around, you can't actually see any food or drink. And you wonder whether you misunderstood. Uh, Perhaps the person who invited you got it wrong. But then all of a sudden, the kitchen door over there is opened, and now you can see uh, Casmero and Brenda warming the croissant and making the coffee. And straight away you know that everything is actually as you were told. Everything really is under control. Now that's what's going on here. John is shown a door standing open in heaven. By the way, it's shown to him, not to us. And he's given a glimpse of what is actually going on behind the scenes. Now I think a very helpful way to think about chapter 4 is as God's control room or God's situation room. Hands up if any of you caught the TV series The West Wing, which was screened quite a few years ago now. Anybody see that? Not very many. Um, Well, anyway, if you did see it, uh, you ought to remember that in the White House there is a special room. It's known as the Situation Room. And it's the place where the President can monitor different situations and problems around the world as they happen and deal with them decisively. And uh, in programmes like The West Wing, of course, the plot is so familiar that you know what's going to happen almost from the start. And usually it's something like this. Uh, A group of terrorists have taken some American citizens hostage, and on the ground, things are looking pretty desperate. It looks like the terrorists are in complete control and the hostages are certain to be slaughtered. But then as soon as the president enters the situation room, there is absolutely no doubt at all as to who is in charge. Everybody knows that he has the authority and the resources to sort out the mess. And five minutes later, it's all over. Now that, friends, is the idea here. In the middle of verse 1, John says, And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now the word to focus on in that sentence is the word must. It's not what will take place. He's not saying, I'm now going to give you a guided tour of the future history of the world. 
That is not the way to read Revelation. Yes, I know our series is called The Future Belongs to Jesus. That, of course, is a marvellous truth. The future does indeed belong to Jesus, and we'll see that at the end of the book. But that is only true because God is perfectly in control now. So, the vision in chapter 4 is about what must take place. That means there's no doubt about it. The whole emphasis is on the sovereign purposes of God which cannot be derailed. They cannot be deflected. They cannot be defeated. And so verse 2 at once says, John, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And he goes on to say that the one who is on the throne is going to have his way. All these things must take place. So the main message of the chapter is that there is no power struggle going on in heaven. Uh, No one's going to be calling a general election in heaven to appoint a new leader because the leader of the universe has been there from eternity past and will be there to eternity future. And this leader is not going to be making any changes whatsoever in his policy. The government of the world was established at the very beginning and it will remain unchanged until the very end. It's a tremendous truth, but it's a truth we're always forgetting. Now, the commentators all make the same point that when we come to this vision of the throne, the language which John uses is very restrained. Because, of course, we naturally want to know what God is like. You see, when Almighty God describes you in the Bible, which he does in various places, such as Psalm 139, it goes into tremendous detail, doesn't it? Uh, It tells us that God has seen our hearts. He knows all our thoughts. He's heard all our words before we even speak them. He's seen us in our mother's womb. All the days of our lives were written in his book before we were even born. Absolutely nothing in your life or mine is hidden from God. But here in this last book of the Bible, just when we think we're going to get a picture of Almighty God, that picture is withdrawn from us. We don't see him at all. All we have is language which tells us how beautiful he is. Those are the precious stones in verse 3 and nobody really knows what they represent. But the symbolism that is perfectly clear is that around the throne there is a rainbow. And coming from the throne in verse 5 there are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And if you know your Old Testament at all then you know about the rainbow in the book of Genesis and you know all about the thunder at Mount Sinai. You know immediately and instinctively what those things mean and I'll come back to them again in a moment. 
So the focus of the scene in heaven is the throne. And uh, it really interests the Apostle John. The word throne is mentioned 62 times in the New Testament. 47 of those references are in the book of Revelation. In the Gospel of Matthew, where a throne is mentioned uh, more than in any other book apart from Revelation, it's only mentioned four times. The point is, you see, that the Apostle John is very keen that we should know that there is a sovereign God seated on the throne of the universe. Uh, Dr. Leon Morris, who's one of the better commentators, puts it like this. John's readers were familiar with earthly thrones and they were troubled by all that Caesar's throne meant. John will not let them forget that there is a throne above every throne. You see, John's first readers were troubled by earthly Caesars, weren't they? And 2,000 years later, of course, very little has changed. The Open Doors prayer letter reminds us of that every day. State-sponsored persecution of Christians is a terrible reality in many countries this morning. And for people who are living in that situation, this book is very precious indeed. Because it reminds us that right at the heart of the universe, there is a throne. Now who recognises this? Uh, is it just a few keen Christians like us studying the book of Revelation on Sunday morning? What does John say? Well, first, he says that the whole creation recognises this important truth. It's not just a handful of super-keen Christians. Come with me to the second half of verse 6. The second half of verse 6 tells us that round the throne were four living creatures covered with eyes in front and behind. Now, throughout the book of Revelation, the number four represents the entire created order. Now, can I say that is not a strange idea for us? Because we sometimes talk about the four corners of the earth, don't we? And when we say that, we aren't saying that we believe the world has four literal physical corners at right angles. No, it's a way of talking about the whole world. And here, John sees four living creatures. Uh, we recognise the lion, the ox and the eagle, uh, but one of them has a face like a man and it's rather odd. What does it mean? One writer says this, he says, the four creatures suggest whatever is noblest, strongest, wisest and swiftest in nature. The lion, of course, is the noblest. The ox, obviously, is the strongest. And still today, when we're talking about the all blacks, we might say that one of them looks as strong as an ox. The face of the man is the wisest. 
The eagle is the swiftest. What on earth does it mean? Well, this same writer goes on to say, all nature, including man, is represented before the throne, now listen to this, taking its part in the fulfilment of God's will and the worship of God's majesty. Now, I want you to think about this. Because whether we like it or not, the representatives of all creation are already worshipping God today. Therefore, if you don't, if that is not your thing, you are out of step with all creation. What does the whole created order acknowledge? Well, two things about God, and you'll find both of them in verse 8. When we put these two things together, I think the picture is astonishing. The first is God's holiness. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. And second, God's power, because he is, they say, the Lord God Almighty. Now, I think it's worth pausing for just a moment and asking whether we ever see those two things together here on earth. And the surprising answer is never. If you find absolute power on earth, it's never good. The overwhelming majority of countries on the world watch list where Christians are routinely persecuted. Those countries are ruled by regimes with absolute power. And those regimes are always characterised by cruelty, lies and paganism. And I think it's a timely reminder that absolute power in this world always means absolute corruption. On the other hand, uh, let's imagine for a moment uh, someone trying to live a good, honest Christian life. He or she grew up in a Christian home. He's been on numerous Christian camps for children and young adults. But now he's left the university and uh, he started a job in one of the big banks in Cape Town. And uh, over the weekend, his uncle takes him on one side and says to him, well, I think it's absolutely marvellous that you've been brought up in a Christian home, but let me give you the benefit of my advice. You will never get on in your career if you insist on holding on to all those idealistic Christian views of the world. You mustn't take it quite so seriously. Now you've got a job, you've got to adjust to the realities of the business world. You see, in that uncle's world view, which in this case, um, uh, the power is actually synonymous with career success, in his world view, power and goodness don't go together. But isn't it interesting, when we read Revelation chapter 4, we find that power and goodness come together perfectly at the throne of God. 
and as we'll see next week in chapter 5, the absolute power of Almighty God and his absolute holiness come together in the person of the Lord Jesus. Now friends, that is not a hope. John is not saying that he hopes that's what God is like. He's telling us what actually is today, right now, this morning, in heaven. Therefore he's contradicting, isn't he, the devil's lie that real power cannot coexist with goodness. And won't you please look at the last line of that song in verse 8? Because he's saying that, notice this, I think this is fascinating, holiness had the first word, why? Look at the last line. Because our God was. But holiness today is the only thing that matters. Because our God is and that holiness will actually have the last word because our God is to come. So at the beginning and at the end holiness is the only thing that matters and it's the only thing that will last. Now surely we can't hear that too often. But not only was the whole created order around the throne, because John sees something else in verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Throughout the book of Revelation, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles stand for all the people of God. It's a picture of the whole church throughout the ages. And they're sitting on thrones wearing crowns because they share the victory of Christ. And they're dressed in white because they've been perfectly purified. So, as well as the world being present before the throne of God, the church is also there. Now, what are they doing? Verse 10. Can we all see verse 10 in our Bibles? The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they were created, and have their being. In other words, they're worshipping God because he is the source of everything in creation. Well, that's a rather brief overview of chapter 4. And what the Apostle John wants us to take away from this vision is that at the heart of the universe, there is a throne, that God is on the throne today, and he always has been, and that the whole created order and the church have always acknowledged this, and they always will. 
Now, if you choose not to acknowledge that, my friend, you are out of step with reality. Now, what difference is all of this going to make to our lives this week? Let me suggest three things for us to take away and think about. First, we learn here that the sovereign God created each and every one of us. It says that quite clearly, doesn't it, in verse 11. Now that means that every human life is infinitely precious and valuable to him. Our parents may or may not have been planning to have us. But behind their plans, or the lack of them, stands the plan of Almighty God. Now friends, that means that any abortion that is not strictly carried out for the sake of the mother's health is to destroy something God has created. Here in South Africa, there are more than 100,000 abortions every year that we know of. Those are just the recorded ones. And I know for some people today, uh, abortion is a lifestyle choice. But perhaps more commonly in Africa, the decision to abort is a response either to rape or to desperate poverty. And of course we want to be extremely sensitive to anybody in that situation. But friends, we cannot escape the fact that to abort an unborn infant is to destroy a life created by Almighty God. And in our passage, that brings us back to the thunder and lightning in verse 5. Because the thunder and lightning around the throne of God remind us that the God on the throne of the universe is also the God of Mount Sinai. It reminds us that the God on the throne of the universe decreed certain laws at Mount Sinai telling us how to run the world. Those laws haven't changed. You shall not murder is still God's rule today and we are not at liberty to redefine it. Now can I say that there are going to be many, many people on the last day who are going to be shocked to hear this. They're going to wonder why they weren't told these things. And one of the things that they're probably going to say is, but you know Simon, the Bible was such a difficult book. But just to show you that in everything that finally and ultimately that matters, the Bible is clear and straightforward, quickly turn with me to the last chapter. Revelation 22, on page 888. Revelation 22, verse 14, page 888. Now here, he's talking about the city of God. It's wonderful. I hope that all of us in this room will be there one day. Look at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they might have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Now I think that's pretty clear. 
The problem is that uh, lots of our friends are going to be outside the city gates. And I need to ask you this morning, what are you doing about that? Are you trying to persuade them to enter through the gates while there's still time? Because unless we tell them, when they find themselves outside the gates of God's city, they're going to be extremely frustrated. And they're going to say, why am I here? The answer to that question is that they only need to spend 30 seconds reading verse 15. Look at verse 15. Outside, outside the gates of the city, are the dogs. Who are they? Those who practice magic arts, in other words, those who practice witchcraft, the sexually immoral, that is, those who run off with someone else's husband or wife, the murderers, the idolaters, that is anybody who worships any god other than Jesus Christ, and in Africa that includes ancestor worship, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Which, by the way, would include that uncle that I mentioned a moment ago, telling his Christian nephew not to take Christian life too seriously. That's false, isn't it? Now let me ask you, is verse 15 difficult to understand? Is it? No. Verse 15 says in plain language that the gates of God's city will be closed against anybody like that. Unless they wash their robes now in order to get ready. So that's the first thing to take away and think about this week. Secondly, much more briefly, back in chapter 4 we're told that we have been created by a holy God. And not only the church, by the way, but the whole wide world will acknowledge that God is holy. Which means that you and I fulfil the purpose of God by living a holy, moral, upright life for the glory of Jesus Christ. I hope you're doing that. And our consciences know it. Which is why, of course, our consciences give us so much trouble. You see, we might not even be Christian, but we cannot get away from the fact that we've been made by a holy God. Let me give you an example. Um, I grew up with the troubles in Northern Ireland, um, always on the news every night. They lasted for more than 30 years. And uh, during that time, more than 3,000 people perished in acts of terrorist violence. One of the reasons the troubles lasted for so long was that the terrorists were so very difficult to catch. But towards the end, there was a sudden and dramatic increase in the number of terrorists being charged and convicted. Now, why was that? Well, one of the reasons was that some of these men simply gave themselves up. They knew they'd done the most unspeakable, awful things. Sometimes as much as five years before. Now, why on earth does a hardened terrorist give himself up after five years on the run? It's rather odd, isn't it? Well, in several cases, it was because they couldn't live with themselves. 
they were tired of running. The God who created them, just like everybody else, created them to be holy. They didn't know that, of course. But you see, even those hardened men couldn't escape that reality. Well, the third and last thing to say about this God who is sitting on the throne of the universe is that he is unchanging, not only in his law, but in his mercy. Because in verse 3, as we said earlier, around the throne, there's a rainbow. Every Bible reader knows what that means. Because in Genesis chapter 9, after God had destroyed the entire world with the flood, he promised he wouldn't do it again. And uh, God gave the rainbow as a sign of his covenant of mercy to all mankind. So as I close, let's just stand back in our minds from the vision of the throne and try and take in the whole picture, which is what we're meant to do. At the very heart of the universe, there is the sovereign God who made us. He made us to be holy, and we will never be happy in any other way. But if we have been unholy, there's a way back, because there's a rainbow around the throne. And the rainbow is telling us that those who tremble at his word and take it seriously can come back to God. He won't destroy them if they will only repent and put their trust in the one to whom the rainbow is pointing. And we'll meet him next Sunday morning. So please make sure next Sunday morning is in your diary and bring your friends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this tremendous reminder that you are this morning seated on the throne of heaven. Nothing, absolutely nothing, is outside your sovereign control. You are worthy to receive all our thanks and praise. And yet how often we forget it. Forgive us, Lord. Please engrave the magnificent vision in this chapter on our hearts and minds so that we might live our lives this week in the light of all that it means. And we ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen.